and welcome to the Autocar Business Powerlist 100 podcast. This is the series where we discuss topics that feature in our physical Powerlist, which is a collection of the 100 most influential people within the automotive industry. I'm Autocar News Editor. Joining me in the studio today is Autocar Business Correspondent Nick Gibbs and Graham Stokes, who is the VP at Powerlist sponsor Key Loop. We're talking about retailers this week. Thank you very much for coming in. Uh, and helping us out with that. Can you tell me a little bit about how Keyloop forms part of the retail environment and how you came to be a part of that? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, so uh, I've worked for Keyloop for around 20 years. Um, and uh, prior to that, I spent seven or eight years at Toyota and Lexus GB. Um, and my entry into the automotive world was actually at a retailer uh, many, many years ago. So I've kind of had experience across the, the three facets of, of what builds the industry. Um, Keyloop is a business where we... Essentially, we're trying to work through a period of transformation with our customers, and our customers are both OEM global entities as well as local retailers. And we are going through a period of significant change, and what's underpinning that significant change is the ability for both OEMs and retailers to embrace perhaps some of the benefits, efficiencies, and and, and effectiveness that technology can offer in the experience both buying and also driving um, that our customers and our partners uh, offer their customers and their partners. So we're working very hard to enable retailers and OEMs to speed up and engage the engagement of how their potential customers can engage with their brands, um, ensure that we're enabling data to be far more positively used and embraced um, to enable that kind of buying experience to be simple. Um, I think we're, we're all consumers in everything we do. And one of the things that I think consumers today look for in building a brand relationship is how easy are they to do business with? Um, and what we're trying to do is pull together all the entities of technology, data, experience across the automotive industry and try and make it simple for our customers to use. Mm. Buying experience, we say it five times a day, but it occurs to me that buying experience is a phrase you only associate with cars and probably houses why don't i have a buying experience when i go and buy a meal deal from tesco at lunchtime why do i need to have a buying experience with a car do you yeah i mean it's a good question right because you do have a buying experience but the fact that it works so well means it doesn't doesn't resonate in your brain Um, things that happen seamlessly become the normality and therefore actually if you went to buy a meal deal in a different place and it was a really poor experience, then you would absolutely acknowledge that that one was better. Um, I think the buying experience is critical when buying a car because actually just look at the investment you're making. You're probably engaging in that vehicle that you're purchasing is going to be with you three, four, five, maybe longer years. You know, It's not a decision that you can back out of particularly easily but also once you've acquired the vehicle you've then got an ongoing experience that you're going to have in getting it maintained serviced and so on so you're you're opening up a a relationship with a company be it an oem or be it a retailer that's going to probably be with you for the next three to five years if it's a bad experience yes you can change it you can sell you can change but it's not a particularly comfortable thing to do so we think very carefully when making big investments, buying a house, mm. big holiday, buying a car. And I think those are probably the three key experiences where we spend most of our time really thinking about what we're going to do because of the impact if we do it wrong. Mm. All of which I think means a car dealer, as we used to know it, and as it used to be a catch-all term for the, for the car retail environment, a car dealer is no longer just a car dealer, right, Nick? It has to be 
lots of other things at once. It's the it's the face of the brand. It's an interact. It's a touch point. We hear we hear touch point quite a lot. So what has been the evolution of that sector in recent years? Do you think? Well, yeah, it is, it is interesting because you have the um, you look at a dealer. And you, you look at uh, the, uh, the the image it displays, and it is of the the car company, right? You think that is an, an extension of that car company, but of course it's not. You know, they're owned by um, separate entrepreneurs, as the as the OEMs call them. Um, and but what they've had to do is, you know, take on a whole load of. Um, Standards from the actual car company themselves, you, you know, and and a lot of the car companies are, have got very high standards, so they require a certain level of, uh, you know, the dealership has to be a certain size, you know, they have to have a certain amount of cars, you know, it's all very tightly regulated, and that costs a lot of money. So you've what you've got to what has been happening is a lot been a lot of consol- consolidation in the industry, where. Uh, bigger dealers have got bigger, you know, until, the, until they form uh, vast groups with hundreds of outlets, and and there are fewer smaller independents, uh, more of the family-run ones that uh, you know, and and particularly in this country, in Europe, that's not really so much the case. You know, they, um, you know, like Germany, you see a lot of family-owned dealerships still, but but what the, the UK and the UK is actually pretty unique in this, um, actually unique in Europe. Um, perhaps uh, Scandinavia as well, is that you, uh, the, these consolidations have created these very efficient giant groups. I mean, we've, uh, we, we've got, um, you know, sort of Pendragon, um, you know, Virtue, um, uh, Jardines, but, the, you know, the, the, these these groups have, have evolved to the point where, you know, they can make they can make cost savings by, you know, all the software, the back end software is all combined to, the, you know, they have a very specific way of doing things when it comes to service and maintenance and sales. Uh, so they become very, they, they've become these enormous organisations and that gives them a lot of power with the car companies. The car companies are very happy that they're, they're very well run organisations because they don't need to worry about them being profitable because you know if you have a load of dealers who aren't profitable they may not pay happy <laughs> and they and they, uh, and so you, you you then you then suffer so that that's great but they have this um, they have this power um and yeah they've become an enormous force which is why they're represented in the in, in the powerless 100 you know and the forces well there they are I mean, a lot of them are american in this in this group, we've got uh, so Mike Manley, CEO of Automation. Uh, Mike Manley, a Brit, of course. Uh, we've got uh, Roger Penske, who heads up Penske Automotive, who are owners of Sitna here in the UK. Um, Emil Fry, uh, 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 Gerhard Sherman, uh, CEO of Emil Fry. Emil Fry is uh, is the biggest dealer group in the whole of Europe. Um, uh, Swiss based, mm-hmm. um, so they're but they're a kind of an exception, you know, because most of the big dealer groups, uh, uh, biggest dealer groups in Europe are actually in the UK. So, um, uh, and then and then you've got uh, Brian de Burt, CEO of Lithia, and Lithia are interesting because they have just concluded a deal to buy Pendragon, so it's going to make them one of the uh, it's American dealer group. They're going to make them one of the biggest uh, and uh, dealer groups in the UK as well. So. You've got these incre- these uh, massive organisations who are come buying into the UK, buying these operations because they see the value in them. They see how um, efficient they've got through soft- using software, perhaps like your your, uh, your own Graham. Uh, although uh, uh, um, 
Pendragon have built up their own software network, uh, Pinewood, you'll be able to look at that, which uh, was an important part of the deal. Um, so, you know, they see the value and they see how important they become. Mm-hmm. And, and what's going to be interesting now as we move into agency is going to see how you know, the, 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 it evolves further mm. from these big groups. How are they going to improve the buying operation? How does the how does the dealer group continue to form a part of that journey under the agency model? What how does the role of that dealer group evolve? Well, it's interesting that the agency model is essentially makes an agent a sales agent of the dealer. Now, the dealer under the wholesale model, they buy the cars from the car company and then sell the cars. So they buy them at a certain price. They've got a certain amount of margin that they can play with. They can either choose to give away all that margin in the form of discount and uh, and, and make the sale and perhaps make their money on bonuses or uh, something called F&I, finance and insurance. And they can make it, you know, they can still make a good living out of that. Out of that. But that costs a lot of money for the car company. So the car companies increasingly are saying, actually, we want to make that sale. So we set the price. You get a, a, a fee for each sale. And that's, you, you, that fee should hopefully cover all the investment that we've asked you to make in your dealership. Uh, but it will, you know, it radically changes how the dealership operates because these aren't their cars they're selling. They're selling for the manufacturer. So what's is it's going to be very interesting, and it's only really started happening this year. Um, Graham, you'll know more about how it's landing uh, within the dealers, but uh, you know we're starting to see how this works in the real world, and I think it's been a bit lumpy. Yeah, I think um, I think it's interesting because I think the only certainty is there's a lot of uncertainty around it. Um, <laughs> I think we're seeing some of the manufacturers having a bold approach to starting. And then making amendments and adjustments through learning on the change, essentially. Mercedes, for example. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and there is a you know there's a genuine kind of concept, I guess, that is actually you're only really going to experience what it's like when you start to move to it and embrace it. And there's an element of risk in that, but it means you're out first, right? So you get the opportunity to to, to embrace that. But everyone has the fun of having a look to see well how how are they doing that because we'll we'll amend it. I think the yeah, you've you've alluded to margins. The automotive retail industry works on very small margins, so risk has to be really calculated because the implication of a drop off in volume and unit sales is enormous. You know, even to a you know the big groups you've referenced there who've got size and scale, yeah, you know, making change often has an impact on performance because change takes a, a small amount of time to kind of adapt to. So they have a they have the challenge of how how do we adapt to this model? Retailers are generally fairly people-based businesses. You've got salespeople, administrators, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What does our people model look like under that model? How do we, do we need that many people if we're not going to be selling directly to a consumer? Mm. Um, And actually, what does that mean for us in how we kind of plan our budgets? But you reference the kind of the investment in the stores, right? The word dealers being used a few times. Actually, I think they, they see themselves as retailers now, mm. quite rightly. Okay, so I think you know, dealer dealer kind of conjures up a connotation in your head, maybe, right? Whereas a retailer has a different perspective. And when you drive past, particularly some of the prestige brands, their locations are incredible, right? There's there's one on the way into here, a Jaguar and Land Rover site, um, the Cinerone. I mean, it's an incredibly impressive building. 
But every time you drive past these buildings, you look at them and think, they look very expensive to operate, yes. right? They've got some great lighting, some great tiles, great coffee machines. Um, it is a genuine retail experience. But in order to keep those lights on and keep the, those those businesses alive, you need consumers coming in. And, and that's, I think, where the gap is at the moment. How do the consumers engage? Yeah. Well, you only have to drive down the sort of Brentford flyover yeah. to see, you know, the Mercedes, Audi, yeah. Kia have got huge, huge interfaces there, brand yeah. exposure. What have the what have the learnings from the early stages of agency been? What do you think Mercedes has taken from that journey uh, that it's now changing and going forward? Yeah, I think um, I think if you look at agency, if we're, if we go back five or six years, um, when this started to really gather some pace in in in, in where we are today, the initial kind of concept around it was around data. So you know, that whilst, whilst there's kind of margin considerations, supply chain considerations, you know, a lot of the conversations that I was having and we were having were around OEMs wanting to have better visibility of data of who their consumers and their customers mm. are. Um, and you started to hear kind of people saying, you know, we want to own the customer. Um, I think one of the big learners is actually over in the last few years is I don't hear that anymore because I think people have started to realise Nobody owns the customer. The customer actually owns the relationship. The the the, the aim of the game for everybody is to you know, engage in the customer so that their user experience and their relationship means they keep coming back because why wouldn't they? Opening long-term relationships rather than a transactional sale. Mm. So I think one of the first kind of learnings has been around actually not trying to force the, the customer to make a decision based on an experience you're, you're forcing on them, it's giving them the opportunity to engage in however they want. So again, we're all customers of everything we buy. We choose to do business with uh, retailers in whatever we're buying based on how we feel when that experience, when, when we go through it, you know, your your sandwich experience. Yeah, if you have a bad experience, you're not gonna go back there. Yeah, if you're sitting here and you want to order something and you pick up your phone, if you find an easy way to do it, you're going to do that every single time. Mm -hmm. If you're doing research on something and that research is clear, readily available and consistent, then it's going to give you a better insight in order to narrow down your selection of choice. And if then when you go and engage face to face and and, 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 and in a retailer, you walk in and all of that previous experience in engaging with the brand leads to um, a kind of consistency then you're going to feel comfortable. You will open the engagement, and your 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 experience will lead you to carry on working with them. So, I think I think that understanding of not trying to force the consumer journey, but actually give the consumer an opportunity to embrace it how they want is key. Mm-hmm. I think the um, I think from a Mercedes perspective, I think it's you know to be fair, that's it's very brave, right? They've they've you know they've got a. A, fa- a fabulous brand which isn't going to get broken overnight so they're in a they're in a nice position there people people engage and embrace mercedes for for a reason um but i think in going first and and uh, you know potentially first really on scale what they've done is they've probably learned for me around the importance of technology in making this journey work so you know, in order for us to um to experience a, a great carbine journey those touch-off points are really important. You know, term it as uh, omni-channel, which is how we see it. That ability to enter into the the relationship from any angle that you want is key. And I think some of the the probably the challenges has been around missing some of those key points in the buying journey, because simplification of systems hasn't kind of engaged the human element that 
that I go through when I buy a car with a salesperson and so on. So how do we join up those touch points that maybe weren't in the in the design process of the, the model that was brought to market? Mm. So how this seems like a, a fundamental shift, basically, in the way we buy cars and manufacturers sell them. How do you survive it? Will everyone survive? What are the risks? Well, I mean, everyone's going to survive because you know you need you need the dealers. I mean, they are a crucial uh, part of the whole sales process. There's no getting away from that because it's from very high amount of uh, proportion of people. Uh, you know, they go into the dealer and they buy the car. You know, the buying online business is it's just not there yet because of it's such an important um, purchase. But um, I mean, but. Again, you know, like all um, like all innovations, uh, there seems to be at the moment. Tesla were the first ones to 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 really make this work. So they, you know, direct sales. They they set up their own dealerships. They went. They, uh, they talked directly to their customers. A lot of it was done online. Um, it was it was a seamless process. So a lot of people thought that was the way to go. But you know, as we've also learned, the Tesla customers are very different. You know, they they are willing to embrace these new methods of working. And uh, uh, but you know how it works for the you know the sort of the, the 90, 80, 90 percent of people who buy cars more traditionally is going to be it's going to be very interesting because. Um, the agency model is doesn't give that price flexibility mm-hmm. that customers have been used to. Now we all say that we don't like haggling uh, uh, dealers, and I think that's probably true. But then you don't need haggle at dealers at the moment because you, you, there are so many different ways to find out where the good deals are. You know, you go on a you know sort of lease sites. You you can see them on Auto Trader, nearly new cars. You can see how much money is coming off. You, you you sort of know you can make your decision on that discount. I mean, it's quite a destructive way of doing business for the car companies because you know you're sort of getting into the lowest common denominator. You, you, the car companies do not want to fight just on price. I mean, it, it, it might be the reality, but they want to change that to the point where customers can see the price, they know what they're going to pay, you know, and they can they can make adjustments in terms of monthly payments, you know, from their down payment, on the type of finance that they want to do. They can do that online. And the, and the vision of the car companies to have do all this within either in the dealer or online same experience you can do the whole thing you can get someone to show you how to do it but the whole you know it's one the sales funnel is the same no matter where you enter the funnel you know whether online or the dealership so they that you know and it's a dream it sounds it sounds very doable the the trouble is the car buying i think is you know it's a bit of a messy experience you know for because no one person does the same thing they want to be able to you want to be able to know they've got they, they want to know, know that they've got a good deal and uh I, you know and well it's kind of ingrained the whole idea that there will be a better deal somewhere else mm. and so if you're a car, uh, if you're a car company and if you go first and your competitors haven't gone that they've still got this incredible flexibility to to adjust the, the prices or rather the dealers have you know and and, and react to a, a very specific geographical area 
in, and 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 then the, the, so the, in a way that the car company as a big organization can't uh, can't react to so they uh, i think you know uh, i think Graham, you say it's quite a messy experience i think that's what's happening they're trying to, they're they're figuring it out particularly amongst mercedes i mean everyone's very pleased with mercedes because yeah. they're kind of showing the way yeah. you know how it works what where the pitfalls are and uh and what and what will uh, what the eventual model will look like? For, so, for example, I mean, with EVs, I think they've given their dealers a you know an extra couple of percentage points on on the fee that they get because they get a percentage of the sale price. Is that because they need basically manufacturers need to incentivize? They it need to those. they need to incentivize it. So basically, and they're also um, giving their dealers uh, so something I've heard that um, a marketing budget. You know, they're basically they. they they realized the power of the dealers when it comes to engaging with their local audience, you know, so they're giving a bit of a budget to them to, you know, get their dealers in, to get the, get the customers in and saying, you know, we, we can't do it all with national advertising, with a, with a, with our own website. A TV campaign. Exactly. Yeah. So, yep. you know, there are very many different ways that you engage with the customers and the dealers have been very, very good over the years at, uh, at finessing those particular sort of uh, um, ch- channels, lots of different types of marketing. Um, so, you know, that, that has to continue and they're sort of working out how they, they can, they can em- embrace that within mm. the whole, the dealer, with the agency model. Mm. I suppose you, you must have to reach a customer in, in different ways now as well. You know, we've just mentioned TV campaigns and big flagship dealers uh, on, on trunk roads and all that sort of thing. How do you, how do you penetrate the market now in terms of visibility? Everyone's sitting at home on, on their laptops, on their phones. How do you cultivate that? That image, if if people aren't walking down the street and staring up at billboards like they used to in the in the sixties, well, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean that. So that I think is the core of the question. It's certainly something we're really focused on, which is how do you maximise the opportunity that you have with a potential customer or or an existing customer, so that when when you're a retailer or an OEM, when you engage, you may only have one opportunity to do that really well. So we've done some research around kind of that buying experience. So how, how what, what is it that entices a, uh, a potential customer of a, of a car to go the route to buy that vehicle rather than the multitude of others that there are? And there's a whole load of factors in that. And one of the key ones is that that person, that person personification of the, the, the way that they're communicated to. So yeah, if we go back, we used to get letters on our on our door whether uh, your car's due a service or have you looked at, the, at this vehicle. We're far less tolerant of random communication now because we're inundated with it in our inboxes. Mm-hmm. And and actually, unless something is very personal, actually addresses what I'm looking to 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 to, to do or to engage with, I'm going to discard it and pop it in the in the trash can, or I'm going to I'm, I'm more than that, I'm going to pop it in a spam and I'll never see it again. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, the big challenge for from a retail perspective and, and OEMs as well is if they're going to get my attention as a consumer, they need to make sure that it's personalised, that it addresses what I'm asking, what are the questions I'm asking, and that it's delivered at the right time in whatever the buying journey is. Mm-hmm. And there's multiple points within the ownership of a vehicle where I should be being communicated to with the right kind of messaging telling me the information that I need, which doesn't rely upon me going necessarily physically into a retailer, but maybe gives me the opportunity to think maybe I should. And this is where cookies and data capture comes in, right? Because you can, you could, for example, see that someone had searched electric car 250 mile range. Correct. The next day they get served an yeah. advert for 
the Polestar 2 or something like that. But it also goes back a step further than that, which is making sure that the big pools of data that you've actually got in your own databases is accurate and clean and up to date mm-hmm. and, and ensuring that if you know, if you've got this pool of four, five, six hundred thousand records that you're kind of historically maybe you're just mass marketing throw it throwing at a wall to see what lands actually being very intrinsic with your spend because all of this costs money right you know whether you're as you said you're an OEM giving giving a retailer an additional marketing spend to try and drive more activity whether you're a retailer doing their own kind of campaigns or whether you're putting that onto the you know a marketing budget into a reduction in price right and we're going to take take some value off the car by putting some marketing spend into it all of that affects the margins of the businesses so yeah, we've talked about the, the the cost of running a retailer. You know, we we need to be running effectively and efficiently, but most importantly, smartly, um, and and ensuring that when we do have those touch points, we're maximising them because it's very easy to lose that customer straight away. Mm. So, how do you then? That, that brings me on to what I was going to ask next, which is we've talked about getting the customer through the door and perhaps out of it again in a new car. How does the retailer now, with respect to all these new models that we're embracing? How does the retailer preserve that customer, keep them in the ecosystem, get them to come back for their next car, keep them you know, constantly engaged with the brand while they've got that car? How does the customer journey evolve? So that's the essence of the problem, right? And I think if, we, if you look at it like this, I think probably historically the, the the relationship kind of ended and started with the phrase closing the deal. We we you know the sales the sales organization and retailer worked incredibly hard to to uh, operate a pipeline, bring prospects into the business, um, take them through a very professional journey of selling a vehicle. As you alluded to slightly around the maybe some of the complications in actually buying that vehicle, finance and insurance and all the other ancillary uh, products that you can do, to the point where the day comes where I come to pick it up, I get my keys, have a probably a lovely experience, and then I drive out and the deal is closed. We're done, and the next time I'll see that customer is maybe in twelve months, eighteen months around a servicing um, relationship. As we know with EVs, the servicing relationship is going evolve slightly we're probably not going to see consumers coming in maybe as regularly as as they do on you know in petrol and diesel cars brake pads lasting 100,000 miles now right and I've always had a a, a, I've always had a kind of thought that I I used to work in trucks many years ago and huge trucks used to run on 100,000 mile oil changes um, but but I mean a long time ago when um, you know service intervals in between, but the, the oil was changed every hundred thousand miles. Um, you know we change oil far more regularly than that. Um, but what that does is that creates a touch point. So we we're viewing it as a business in in actually trying to work with our customers to say it's not about closing the deal. It's about actually opening the the relationship. The point that you actually make the sale. That's the point, and when the hard work starts, because you've now got to retain that customer. Mm-hmm. Um, so f- for us, it's around understanding the points in the continual journey of the customer's relationship with their retailer or their OEM, and making sure that you're using intelligent data, intelligent communication to engage with those consumers at the right time. So when is the right time to remind them that the service is due? You know, when's the right time to remind them that maybe their finance is at that peak point to, to, to have a conversation with? 
people. I suppose this is what this is why you need a, a sort of excellent communication between the uh, the car maker and the and the dealer, right? Yeah. Because what, what the one thing the car maker has got is the app. You know, app is something that we've never used to have, uh, but now you know, all companies offer an app that will connect with the car, and uh, that is something. If you make it well enough, you put enough features on it that mm. people will use. Are you know maybe uh, maybe once a week we spoke about uh, you know turning on the car uh, before before uh, going out on a cold day to warm pre warm it yeah you know and that's and that brings you into the app and then while you're there something could pop up presumably and uh, say you know service due or whatever it is and, uh, that 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 requires that app is owned by the car uh, the car company isn't it so the dealer has to insert themselves into well into it's that interesting process. because because is i think you're absolutely right but there is also we you know we're talking about some pretty large groups right and and, and it's a really good point because that's where there's this dichotomy of uh of the term franchise so you know the retailers are they franchises or are they kind of brands on their own in, in their own right so you know, Sitner, for example, they are a very strong brand. They they have a core set of beliefs about how they do business. They train and educate their staff incredibly well. Um, they're very thoughtful in how they develop and enhance their systems processes. They're a brand, but they've also represent multiple other brands. So you've got the crossover of BMW, Mercedes, mm-hmm. JLR in that as well. Yeah, I think the the app position is really interesting because I'm I'm not sure yet that anyone's doing it particularly well. Um, I th- yeah, I, I think, but I think that's not through want of trying. I think it's because, um, you know, this is where we we as a business sit. It's because there are so many touch points in this ecosystem that have their own data sets, their own processes, their own controls. And actually, I think the the the, the person or the people or the businesses that end up kind of succeeding will be the ones that work with companies to say, look, we, we want to kind of take, slightly take our ego out of it. We want to kind of align all of this data um, and all of all of this customer information seamlessly into one place. And we accept that we're not going to link you all up. So we need we need people that can sit in the middle and help us facilitate data flow. Uh, and ultimately, it's the data flow that will drive the experience because mm. if we have the right data at the right time, it means that we'll be contacted when we need to be. So I think I think that's from an app perspective. I mean, I, I have this conversation regularly with colleagues around nobody does it really well. I, I want an app on my phone that I can do absolutely everything with in the same way that I do with music and banking. But as, as, as I'm told regularly, well, you'd need four or five apps because you might get your car serviced at four or five different places. You might have two cars and both of them are different brands. So there is a there is a certainly a collective movement to to retailers and 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 their OEM partners really trying to understand what that what good looks mm-hmm. like and we've seen them we've seen them dipping in and out of it but I'm not sure anyone's quite quite got it yet it, it's difficult to imagine how the rise of electric cars which don't need as much servicing mm. uh, the advent of software which allows you to upgrade your car at home have your car picked up from work or whatever for servicing it's difficult to see how that won't breed consolidation I mean Pe- Penske employees 70,000 people, AutoNation, uh, I think sold 16 million cars, 14 million cars since 1996. So that's huge, huge numbers, which are just off the top of my head and I'm not reading off uh, a fact sheet that I've got in front of me. But how do these big dealer groups that we've talked about, how do they preserve that scale when customers are naturally engaging with them less? Yeah, I mean, you make a good point about uh, the after sales, you know, because that is a... 
you make uh, d- dealers make uh, retailers. Sorry, I, I'm glad <laughs> we have I've gone away from closing the deal. Um, retailers make a lot of the uh, you know 50% margins on after sales, whereas you know a new car sale might be I don't know three four percent margin. So you know the after sales is obviously a very big part of what you know the, the, the process so they've got, they've got to continue that going but there's also uh what we what they call the fni which is uh, finance and assurance which is you know things you can add on top of that um that you know that there's a balance between giving customers what they want and trying to upsell things that they don't need uh so there's yeah there's definitely that aspect of it but uh yes the after sales side of it is going to is, is going to be increasingly important but i, I think you know they and um, they have to be quite smart on things like that you know i mean used car sales is obviously another big part of it because uh you know traditionally dealers have made um these, these big retailer groups have made more on um used cars than they have on new. Um, so, you know, actually, w- when it comes to EVs, uh, customers are going to want to know a lot, lot about, uh, you know, for example, the quality of the battery. They, they, they you know, they, they need to give some very detailed information about about that car that perhaps can be delivered online. You know, if you're looking uh, across the dealer stock, that uh, that car, you know, how that car has been used in its uh, in its previous life, for example, has it all the charging been done on rapid chargers, which is generally not very not great for a battery, or you know, has there been lots of lovely long slow slow charge um, events that uh, mean that battery is now in tip top condition that uh, you mm-hmm. can take it another forty thousand miles without worry. So you know, the dealers are right at the intersection of that. That's going to happen. Um, so yeah, there are, there's definitely opportunity there, and. Uh, and also, you know, with the cars, I mean, the manufacturers will say that because we can update the software uh, on these massive screens, you could have an experience on a used car, which is actually not far off uh, that of a new car, uh, because it will have the latest software. To, you know, we can add features uh, by updating that software over the air. So what actually you're getting is a car that's not far off the experience of a new car. So they can then perhaps lease that at a rate that is... Um, that's good to them. I mean, obviously, there will be some interaction with the the manufacturer because they also want to keep a little bit. They want to keep that on their books as well. Uh, if there is this great value in the, in the used cars, more so than perhaps there was before. Um, so yeah, there's a there's there's still a lot to be worked out in the whole relationship between the the manufacturer and the retailer. But uh, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a lost cause going to electric. I mean, I know a lot of the retailers are worried about it, but it's going to be uh, going to be something that uh, it's always, it's going to present its own opportunities. They've just got to be smart about finding them. Yeah. Do you uh, do you feel confident enough to give us uh, a bit of outlook? You know, for the next five years, uh, is it going to be quite a rapid, you know, rapid acceleration of these changes, or do you think we'll see a bit of sort of stagnation as people get used to it and, and find their feet, as it were? Well, I think um, I think if you look at it from the from the the, the the retail and OEM perspective before the consumer, I think the we you've alluded to it already. I think the the, the marketplace is is shrinking definitely, and we're seeing you know in the last six to eight months alone, you've kind of mentioned Lithia earlier on, and 
Um, you know, we're, we're seeing some of the European large groups starting to acquire businesses in the UK. We've always seen you know, the American um, ownership with Penske, for example, coming into Sitna. We've seen the Middle Eastern groups starting to come into the UK in, in some scale. We've had South African businesses buying UK businesses. Uh, and I think you referenced earlier about the, you know, outside of Emil Frey, I think the next three or four largest groups in Europe are British and um, uh Actually, I think some of those groups are, are starting to not necessarily shrink down, but they're starting to align their brand relationships with perhaps those that they see close unity with through an agency model or alternatively see close unity with without an agency model. And then if you throw into that mix the kind of rise and increase of uh, new entrants, particularly from China, and, and the potential that they're not going to adopt an agency model in certainly in the infancy, they're going to go for growth and, and, and work with traditional partners. I think what we see is probably a, a period of continued, not uncertainty, because I think the, the retail groups are very um, clear in their strategic direction, but uncertainty and actually the kind of the, the, the environment they're operating in, because there is going to be these varied ways of, of engaging with, with, with consumers. I think if I'm a consumer, and I've got the option to work with a retailer or, or an OEM. I'm not entirely sure, and this is probably maybe controversial, but I'm not entirely sure I'll know because I'll potentially be doing my research as I do today online. Um, I'll potentially be engaging with a, uh, a person maybe via a chat, via chat, chat, chat mechanism. I, the retailers will still be there, and I, I suspect I'll continue to go into those. I think the question is going to be how how is the transformation piece managed, and the consumer will determine that rather than either the retailer or, or the or the OEM. The consumer will determine whether they want an experience with a retailer selling me the car, or they want to physically buy it online on the phone via chat etc um, or maybe they're actually the consumer will determine how they're going to buy it and whether they actually buy it are they going to rent it or lease it or you know how, how are the funding options going to be so i think yeah it's not a great answer i'm afraid but i think there's probably a continued period of sort of uncertainty as as we see some of the other brands start to bring their approach to direct to consumer to market and start to maybe make their adjustments through that period as well but I, th but I think very firmly there is a continued absolute need for the retailer. I genuinely believe that. I think the retailers know how to look after customers and they know how to service a continued relationship with a customer. And I'm not sure direct-to-consumer agency fully addresses that just yet. Well, it feels like a uh, as conclusive as we could possibly hope for uh, as a note to end this this episode. That's about all the uh, that's about all the time we have today, uh, and we'll bring uh, we'll bring this episode and in fact this series to a close. This is episode five uh, of the uh, of the Powerlist podcast series. So thank you very much, to Nick. Thank you to Graham for coming in. Uh, you can go to your podcast provider for the rest of the Powerlist podcasts. And if you go to autocart.co.uk forward slash autocart hyphen business, uh, you can download the physical list itself. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.